0: Hello and welcome to Misbehave, the podcast where we explore human behaviour in a business context. Season 2 of Misbehave is all about uncovering behavioural patterns which create success in life and business. We're joined by highly driven, accomplished individuals to assess their behavioural patterns and dive into how behaviours have influenced their journey. This episode features Ate Mietanen, a serial entrepreneur and extreme altitude mountain climber. From a career in the Finnish military to raising 500 million across his last five startups to climbing the highest mountains of every continent, Ate inspires at every level. As one of just 100 people globally who have achieved the same in mountaineering, Ate has over 25 expeditions under his belt, including the seven summits and successfully climbing Mount Everest in its second deadliest ever season on record at the time. The content of this episode may be emotionally challenging. This episode contains references to death, violence, trauma and nudity. Well, welcome, Atte, to the podcast. We are pleased to have you with us. And I thought we'd start with a little opening question. Can you give us, because you've got such a varied journey, a little bit of a synopsis of your journey from The military, to starting and selling five businesses, to 25 successful mountaineering
1: expeditions. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I think it's been a a journey of sort of accidents and opportunities like most people's lives are and careers are all about. So either I've been in the wrong place or in the right place, that will be left for others to determine. (laughs) But I, I was born in Finland, regular family my parents encouraged me and my siblings two younger siblings to pursue our goals and desires in life and we found ourselves pursuing very different things my sister became a nurse my brother became a rapper and i became a mountaineer slash business person and i think my parents instilled the curiosity of of testing your limits and being the best person you can be which has led me on a journey of you know, lots of exciting international challenges, both on a personal and professional level.
2: What a family. I'd like to come around for dinner at your house. I think it would be some
1: interesting conversations. <laughs> There's some very interesting conversations. just yes. diff-
2: Very
0: different walks of life.
1: <laughs> but absolutely, but, but that's richness, right? It's, it's, uh, if we were all carved out of the same wood, we would be a little bit boring. So it's nice to have different opinions and I've learned that even people from a very similar background can have very different views and uh, views on life and things in general and and desires of what they want to be and how they want to spend their time on the earth.
2: For sure. Take us back a little bit to your military career. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So in Finland, we unfortunately have a significant amount of history with our eastern neighbors the russians and we've had to fight for our independence in the last couple of generations my grandfather was 16 i think when he volunteered to go and protect the farm i think at the time and we have now a compulsory military system for all men and i ended up spending a fair amount of time practicing to do all kinds of cheeky things if things I ever needed which was an interesting experience in many ways women or mothers and women in general tend to say that boys become men when they go and do their military service because you generally go after you finish high school sort of 18 some people go a little bit later but you go from mom doing your laundry and cooking your meals to you having to look after yourself and it's quite a quite a maturing process you have to go through pretty quickly and in Finland, we have a system that allows people to focus on different areas. So if you want to become a doctor, you can apply to serve in that type of function. If you're an engineer, you can serve in a different function. I ended up in the special forces. I wanted to push myself. So ended up doing all kinds of interesting things that push the body physically to a limit. And I think that was some of the good challenges that I took away from the military I think I challenged also and caused a little bit of a challenge at times by challenging the psychological side of questioning why we do things in a certain way rather than another way. And obviously a military function is not designed for people challenging, but just doing. And maybe that was a trigger for pursuing a career afterwards where I challenge status quo of existing industries and find new ways of doing things.
0: And I think that gives us our first glimpse into your behavioural patterns because they are definitely not one that is conducive to that do this, follow this rule, follow this process, do as you're told, be quiet. So it kind of explains what came afterwards. So talk us through a little bit and we'll get into the big journeys that you've had in the startup world and the exiting of those but I want to dig into a little bit, first of all, around your inspiration behind mountaineering. Now, you kind of intonated a little bit that I'm suspecting some of that came from the pushing your limits piece in the Special Forces. But talk us through that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, first of all, it's important to recognize that mountaineering is not a normal ambition or sport or area of interest in finland we're like the uk we're a hilly country we're relatively flat so the highest point is 1300 meters above sea level so people don't generally go hiking that much in finland my father used to be an avid hunter so i think from that came some of the outdoorsy desire my mother, when she was younger, was an athlete. So I think it's a, I like to blame my parents and say it's a combination of what they instilled, not just with their interest, but also uh, the sort of general belief in whatever you want to do in life, try to be the best you can be. And it doesn't mean that you're stomping on other people and using them as climbing ladders to get somewhere, but push yourself, you know, find your limits and, and push yourself. And I think that's the only place I can imagine that my sort of desires to push myself and curiosity come from. I may have been slightly inspired also by my brother because I remember years ago when he was probably 14 years or 15 years old, my parents and my father is a banker. My mother was a lab technician. So very sort of traditional, normal jobs. They asked my brother to come into the living room and said, so, You've met our family friends; they're engineers and lawyers and doctors and so forth. What do you want to be when you grow up? And my brother looks at them straight in the eye and goes, "A rapper." <laughs> and, and my parents, I remember the kind of worry in their faces as my mom looks at my dad and goes, "We failed. We failed." <laughs> and then this repeats. a maybe three years later, they ask, they lobby for three years, and they ask him again and say, what do you want to do when you grow up? And my brother goes, well, I definitely know what I want to be. I want to be a rapper. And he's become a rapper, a very well-known rapper in Finland, and made a great life out of that. So it's maybe proven to me that it doesn't matter what you want to do, as long as you invest yourself fully into that. And if the desire is there, and the willingness to work hard, you can be whatever you want.
2: And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we often talk to people about, the pressures of young people being asked because it's a traditional question Yeah, you know you get asked it at school you have to consider it before you make choices about education but actually who knows and actually we we're massive believers that you never become one thing solely you're always on a an evolving journey and actually if you can see you might decide to be for example a rapper at a certain period of your life but for you you've done many different things and you actually do it periodically in different stages. You know, you set up a business and you go and do other things. And I love that attitude around you don't have to put yourself in a box and stay in the box for the rest of your life. And actually your behaviors, you know, often you get those behaviors instilled from family generationally and your upbringing and the people you come into contact with. But having that, I mean, you use the word curiosity. And I love that because it's about being curious about what's out there and what's next and what could you do? Yeah. Can you tell tell the listeners a little bit about some of the, the expeditions you've been on? Like, what's been the
1: biggest lesson
2: that you've learned on a mountain? Like, what what is what did that look like for you?
1: Well, I think there's been a lot of lessons. I mean, mountains have taken me to twenty five different countries around the world, from Antarctica to the Andes to Alaska to the Himalayas to jungles of. Indonesia, where I've been held at gunpoint at the end of the expedition, because we wandered into the wrong place. But I think it, it you learn a lot about people, you learn a lot about yourself, you learn a lot about life in general, and, and the importance of, I think, looking after these pretty pristine places. So th- there's a huge amount of learnings that I've taken away from, you know, I love travel. I've had a chance to go to hundred and something countries, so I have half the world still to see. But I find myself increasingly looking to experience and be able to go to places where not many people have been able to go, whether that's Antarctica, where you learn and understand what it takes to maintain it pristine and the importance of maintaining it pristine, or you go and meet a tribe in an Indonesian jungle that was discovered 60 years ago. They didn't know anyone existed 60 years ago, which at first is a great reaction. Then you watch them wearing Chelsea and Arsenal t-shirts and you go, but no trousers. <laughs> and you go, okay, this is, this is somehow a bit screwed up. <laughs> then you become sad almost. Well, in practice, I think even, because after you hire them to help you get to the mountain and you ask, what do they do with the money? If they don't buy trousers, there doesn't seem to be a lot of need for money. And a translator says they buy two things. They buy rice and Coca-Cola oh my- and you go, what? So these people hunt birds and enjoy them with a bottle of Coke. I mean, we're sort of, you know, destroying the culture as as people so there's there's issues like this but i think from a personal level outside of these type of external factors you learn through pursuing or chasing mountains that number one we're capable of a lot more than we think many people when i talk to them about mountaineering they go oh that's hard sounds hard i could never do that It's just like everything else. It's a project. You have to set a goal, break it into parts, plan it, prepare for it, etc. Have the right attitude, right training, and you can pursue that. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways. And as you do these type of experiences or, or pursuits, your mind opens up to what's possible. And I think for me, one of the important realizations is that the mountaineering and business both feed each other. So I use the mountaineering to sort of de-stress from work between projects, if you will. And on the other hand, when I come back off a mountain, I go, I should set my ambition levels a little bit higher on the next business project because you realize that you thought you did something which was kind of hard. And it turned out to go okay. So why not push yourself professionally a little further too?
0: And that cross-section between the two, I think is so fascinating and the lessons that you can learn and you can apply in those two different scenarios. Give us a little, and I know you could talk about this all day. And when we met, obviously I've heard you talk about it in a little bit more detail, but give us a bit of a summary of what it feels like to climb something like Everest. Cause obviously you climbed it. I think it was its. Second deadliest season on record at the time. That's
1: correct. Yeah.
0: Just give us a bit of it and the listeners a little bit of an overview of what that feels like to climb, what the process is, what some of the things are that's going through your head when you're doing something like that.
1: Sure. So, first of all, as people, we're designed to operate at sea level. So, anyone can say that running nine kilometers, which is roughly the height of Everest, will take you less than an hour. But the first acknowledgement is that as we go vertical, it's about 8 to 10 weeks that it takes to climb the mountain. So it's a big physical and mental challenge. So the first kind of important highlight I would emphasize is that many people look at mountaineering and they conclude that, oh, that must be physically very challenging. And no doubt, it's physically very challenging. But on a mountain, the biggest challenges I feel, and I think most mountaineers would agree with me, the biggest challenges we face inside our own heads. We have to be away from our loved ones. We have to be uncomfortable, feeling sick every day. When you climb Everest, you're spending basically 90% of the time at above five and a half kilometers, which means low oxygen, which means every time you stand up, you get a headache you can't eat you lose appetite you get easily sick you're sleeping on a rock if you're lucky so it's not a comfortable environment but then when you mix with this the psychological or mental challenges of seeing people get injured when i was on the mountain every week we carried someone in a body bag to a helicopter it's quite a sobering quite quite a sobering thing weather changes, plans change, and you're in this constant state of ambiguity where you don't know what's going on. And it's very hard for many people. And you have to mentally prepare for the fact that we have to self-manage ourselves and we have to focus on the things we can control and ignore the things we can't. And that's why when... COVID came a couple of years ago. I had many people in my company being very worried about COVID, but I found it relatively easy to cope with the uncertainty and ambiguity because it was very similar to a mountain where you just have to put it in the back burner and say, I can't fix the weather, so no point worrying about it. I just have to react to it, but I focus on the things that I can control and beyond that mountaineering taking on big mountains is just like building a business or building a house or something else you have to have the right team you have to have the right plan the right preparation it's a combination of a lot of things and for me having been able to stand on top of everest required a team of 120 people almost wow climbers porters all kinds of people and i view climbing especially high altitude climbing, almost like a puzzle. Every piece is a person and every piece is needed. If you're missing the most insignificant piece in some ways or the smallest piece or whatever, you can't complete the puzzle. So any piece is important or all pieces are equally important for the pursuit. And I think that teaches you a lot about life and business in general.
2: For sure. There's so many things that are like transferable, isn't there? Because I mean on the surface you think well how can you compare business with climbing mount everest but actually that that lesson there that you've just shared around like focusing on the things you can control and almost compartmentalizing the things you can't or or putting them somewhere where they're not impacting you on a daily basis or they're not creating a narrative in your head that's not useful and really being able to hone in on the things that are going to get you from a to b and i think even in business a lot of people that we work with and, you know, we come in, into contact with, there's a lot of synergy around the mind stuff is yeah. the stuff that can often be your biggest barrier or get in your, get in your way, your own your own way.
1: Oh, a- a- absolutely. And w- when I talk to kids, I, I go from time to time and talk to kids at school about climbing, et cetera. I talk to them about positive confidence. So mountaineers, first of all, oftentimes say that whether you think you can do it or you think you can't. Either way, you're right. So you have to believe that you can do it. That's when you give yourself a chance to succeed. If you doubt yourself, that doubt is probably going to creep into what you do and make it difficult to read something. So we have to find this positive confidence where we trust our training, trust our skills. We're still humble. We still understand that we're not experts in everything. We have a lot to learn, but we're confident with what we know. We're not arrogant. Arrogance on mountains, unfortunately, leads to death too often when people think they're superhuman. We have to recognize that we have to operate within certain confines, but when we find this positive confidence and operate effectively with our team members, that's when we give ourselves a, a great opportunity to succeed. And then, you know, the other things come into play. It's, determination comes into play, especially high up on the mountain, teamwork, looking after each other, drawing strength from each other, being able to vent to others or or de-stress through talking to others because it can be a pretty lonely place. I mean, you, you don't, just like in business, if you go and climb Everest, you don't get to choose who you climb with. You choose the expedition and the managers of the expedition will bring in the other people. So when I was on Everest, I had everything from a Saudi prince to a 62-year-old American judge in the team. Very different people, very different views on on life. And you learn to realize that I need to find my role in the team. I need to build good relationships with these people because literally a week after I meet them, I need to be willing to put my life in their hands. And if you meet people with that type of attitude in life, where you say, I'm meeting someone for the first time, what do I want to say or listen or what? how do I want to act so I build confidence that I can trust this person with my life? It's a different set than what we do in our day-to-day lives today.
0: I think that's fascinating. And I think that's a big lesson for how you meet people in business because I think so often People go into it with with almost an agenda, but an agenda of like, how do I prove myself to this person or how do I get them to do something for me, whether that's buy something or, and actually, if, if you can think about it from that trust perspective, if someone trusts you, they're more likely to buy from you, they're more likely to do business with you, they're more likely to like you. I think that that feeling of how do I build trust with this person both from both sides is is great. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what with, with your behavioral map, There's there's a behavioral pattern that we talk about as reflective. And what it means is it's how you act. So usually reflective people think first, then act. And we've talked a little bit around when you're on a mountain, sometimes you don't have the thinking time, you don't have the ability to think first. And I remember you played something, and I know you do this in some of the things that you do for businesses as well, where you had everybody close their eyes. And I'm just, I'm pu- I'm walking this through the, for the listeners because it was super impactful for me. You had everybody close their eyes and then you played this sound of an avalanche and talked about the fact that sometimes you, you climb at night and I'll kind of let you explain that. But you talked about this concept to scenario planning that you have to do the thinking first because often in the moment in an expedition, you don't have time for that. Can you walk us through that a little bit of of your approach to scenario planning ahead of expeditions and doing that reflection time beforehand and how that enables you to think quicker in the moment and some examples of that?
1: Absolutely. So like I alluded earlier, I think when you prepare for especially dangerous expeditions, high altitude expeditions, as important as is, Physical preparation, you have to prepare mentally. And the way I approach this is I try to picture situations that I may find myself in. avalanches, injured teammates, or injured people in period. Whether they're my teammates or not is sort of irrelevant. Rock falls, injuries, death, etc. And I try to walk through in my mind, normally in my mind multiple times on How should I behave in that situation? The goal of that for me, it means that when I encounter that situation on a mountain, it's not for the first time, if you follow my logic. So in my mind, I feel calm because I've gone through this process. It feels like I've been in the situation already previously and I know how to behave. I'm more calm. I'm more confident in my decision making because I'm not letting the lack of oxygen impact my judgment, for example. My decision making is faster, etc. So I find that highly useful and I use that same logic in my work. So I prepare for difficult conversations with employees or customers or partners with the same type of approach of trying to visualize in my mind what could happen and what would be my response to that. Obviously, in a business conversation, you have a little bit more time, but I find that as we all eventually face in business, if you have to, for example, fire a person, you can do it in a gentle or professional manner, or you can just be rude about it. And I prefer to be gentle and, and professional about it. So you can walk through the process and, and think how can I make this easier? You can't make it easy, but how can I make it easier for that person and try to give them a, give them a helping hand with whatever they need to do next. So I find that visualization very, very important. And I've had to do that in my private life too, because I travel, I've traveled to many emerging markets where there are civil disturbances. Your hotel might be on fire. You might see people who need medical attention. I used to dive and teach first aid, et cetera, to divers earlier in my life. So just as a, as a side hustle, if you will. And that teaches you also to work on these scenarios. And it's very similar to military, right? We train muscle memory, et cetera. If you hear bullets flying, you drop to a knee, make yourself small and return fire, and you don't have to think about it. Same exact logic on a mountain, but more people focus on things like self-arrest with an ice axe. So if you sleep, you practice muscle memory of what do you do to stop yourself from sliding off the mountain. But I take that a step beyond and think about these challenging psychological situations. And I found that they're very helpful to do that in advance.
0: And I think that impact on the brain, like we talk a lot around preparing your subconscious and how Often it's that cortisol and the adrenaline that's going through your body in those situations. And I think that thought process of almost kind of tricking the brain into I've been here before, I've done this before, even though they haven't physically done it before, will help just lessen the impact
2: of that adrenaline in those moments. Yes. Do you know what I think's interesting as well? Because often in our exec coaching that we do with people, if they're highly reflective, I mean, you're not super high, but if they are, sometimes the challenge they bring to the table is that they can get stuck overthinking and actually they're playing so many different scenarios the fear kicks in and then they can't they can't get out of it and the narrative is then they're then driven by all the fearful worst outcomes and actually it stops them from moving forward the way you describe it is really interesting because what you're saying is is actually not just playing out the scenarios actually thinking through how you would cope with it what would you do in that instance and almost training the mind to say I've got this. I've been there before. I can do it. And I think that'll be really interesting for people listening around interrupting a reflective loop that's not useful, that is potentially causing you to stay in a state of like flux or anxiety, but actually using it for good, Press and pause, thinking it through, and then telling yourself, well, I've actually planned, I've prepared, I've thought it through. And then now I know, depending on the scenario that comes, So rather than letting the fear grip you, actually allowing you to feel prepared for it. And I think that's so interesting. Mm.
1: Yeah, That's absolutely critical because, and and I don't think it's a natural preparatory step for all people. I, I don't know what portion of people would do that, but I frequently see people in mountains who are very accomplished in professionally, for example, in whatever they do, they're good decision makers. But on a mountain they freeze. So they they regular questions become complicated. I've had teammates who I have great, great respect for who, on Everest Base Camp, come to me and say, what do you think I should wear today? Which seems like a silly question, and you almost take it as a joke at first. And then you realize that this person is struggling with the fact that they're out of their comfort zone. Everything's changing all the time someone just hurt themselves or died the day before they, they can make a simple decision and they need a little bit of reassurance. And obviously that's kind of extreme, but I see oftentimes people who get into this frozen situation of they're unable to make a decision. And I find I haven't found myself in that situation, but I find that this mental preparation and scenario planning and visualizing these situations, is hugely helpful in avoiding that. And I've been in situations in my life where I've encountered people who had medical problems or even people who've died, and all this preparation has helped cope with it. And, And I've seen it's not natural for everyone else to prepare for these things in this way.
2: You've obviously got, looking at your map, that you are obviously a high achiever and I mean everything that you've done it for you you say it quite blase but actually you know <laughs> he's, he's talking about it as if yeah I climbed Mount Everest you know but these things are, are really massive achievements and some of the stuff that you've done in business that we're going to get to be really interesting to hear about how do you come down off such a big achievement like what do you do with that and how do you cope with once you've hit one thing, are you always like, right next, I need to move on. What's the next thing? What, what What's your general?
1: Well, well I, unfortunately, I am a little bit like I need something else. I need a new challenge. And and I think uh, w- one of the areas where I have a lot to learn from is to be able to spend some time celebrating whatever happened and and taking enjoyment out of it. I'm more of a person who I have a long list of things I would like to do, many more things than what I have time for. So I tend to be uh, for myself, I want to try to do something or or do something. I don't do it for someone else's benefit or or like that or some other reason other than I want to do it. But yeah, I, I find myself planning. I probably have Another 25 mountaineering projects in planning, a couple of skiing expeditions across Greenland and South Pole and so forth. So I have all these things and I sort of recognize that can't do all of it, but depending on where life takes you next, these opportunities may open up. And then I, again, because I've thought about it in advance, I can go, hey, I might be able to squeeze this kind of project in here and do something else. I've just got a picture of Ate's vision board.
2: I know. You imagine like, what that looks like. It would be like the whole side of a of a wall in his house <laughs> or something where like, you know, most of us would have a, an A4 piece of paper outlining that. It's interesting, though, isn't it? That piece around taking a moment to celebrate the success. We see this a lot in business where people and, and sometimes we even like well, we fall into that, that. Yeah. don't we? Yeah. Where you're like, you do something great. And you might go, yeah, that was great. And then we're like, right, what's next? And particularly if you're someone who is driven to, you know, if you've got lots of aspirations, but it can be a downside because sometimes you forget to celebrate the success, but also to appreciate the journey and not just about getting to the destination.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I regard this in myself as definitely a weakness because I think in today's world where every, well, Majority of people are highly overworked. They don't have the luxury of taking time to celebrate achievements. And that's really, really, really critical. And it goes back to, again, there's a parallel to a journey like Everest. The journey is so long and so complicated that you cannot show up on the mountain and every morning wake up and go, I need to think about the summit. I need to think about the summit. No, 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 no. We need to break the journey into milestones and celebrate those milestones because otherwise you lose your mind. You're sitting in there going, I've been here six weeks and I'm no closer to the top than I was when I came. It becomes burden and it starts gnawing at you. So instead of thinking about it that way, we have to look at little milestones and recognize how those keep inching us closer to the top. And if we keep Hitting those milestones, then eventually the opportunity will open up to push for the summit.
0: And how have you applied that learning to your business journey? Because obviously you've had lots of startups, you've exited lots of them. How have you taken that lesson? Because I think that's hard in business. And we hear lots of people struggling with that. You know, they've got these big goals, but actually they struggle to almost celebrate those little milestones as they go along
1: yeah well first of all i think it's an evolution so i noticed when i first started and had one of my first or second companies i remember there was a very experienced british businessman who took me aside and he was my boss at the time and he said look you're like a factory that functions 24 7 (laughs) but there's not a lot of product coming out (laughs) And it stuck with me as a a sign that as a young person, I would get involved in millions of things. So I would have too many things going on in parallel. And most of them were actually insignificant to the journey or the path or the progress of the company. So I think the first way it's impacted me is that whenever we start a company or do something, try to break it down into what are the critical steps? and try to cut the noise out because there's events and speaking and all kinds of stuff going on all the time. And you'd have to sit there and go, is this going to help us get to the to the goal or not? And it doesn't mean like we don't do anything other than those that are on the critical path, but we need to recognize what the critical path is and then recognize, okay, so what kind of things do I need to achieve? And, In startups, a lot of it is driven, of course, by some sort of milestones related to funding or whatever else, which help you kind of visualize what what we need to achieve. But it's trying to strip the noise out and focus on on the critical things. And again, mountaineering is a great kind of parallel to this because unlike the day-to-day work where we get exposed by advertising and traffic and people and noise and TV and radio and all these things that distract us on a mountain, they're not there. Your life becomes pretty simple. It's about survival and getting to the next milestone. So the mountain thinking, high altitude thinking allows you to sort of narrow your focus and 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 find what's critical and try to cut the noise out of the everyday life.
0: It's like that concept, isn't it? It's like, will it make the boat go faster? That question of actually staying focused on the end goal, but answering the question. And actually, if the answer's no, if the answer's actually, it's going to distract me from that goal, then you don't do it. But having something in your business that can give you that laser focus and sort of bring you back, I want to wrap up by asking you, what has been your
1: favorite
0: expedition and why? Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Ooh. I think uh, climbing a mountain called Karsten's Pyramid in, in Indonesia was where I talked about taking a private plane, landing in a jungle in the village that was discovered 70 years ago with people running around without trousers on was quite amazing because it felt like, not the trouser part, but the fact that you were able to interact with people whose culture has been sheltered. And, you know, we ended up due to problems spending a week in the chief's hut. They lived in huts. They had these tree branches with stuffed birds and all the birds were missing heads. Oh dear,
2: it sounds delightful.
1: And then the following morning, we we were held by bow and arrow point, which I haven't done. I've, I've had people do all kinds of things to me in the past and pull out knives and guns and all kinds of stuff. But that's a separate conversation. But we were held by bows and arrows, which I had never seen in my life before. And it wasn't sort of a scary situation as much as I had to bite my lip because I found the humor in that. I almost burst out in laughter, like, are you guys serious? I don't think you scenario planned that one, did you? No, no, I did not see that coming. And and then later in the same expedition, after trekking sort of sixty-five, seventy kilometers through a jungle and climbing a mountain, being held at gunpoint at a mine where they mine gold and something else, you know, it's a memorable one. But there's so many memorable ones. I love Antarctica was amazing also because you're in places where literally you can see peaks that no one has ever set foot on. And that's for someone like me who's curious on seeing the world and appreciates seeing the world. You look at places and go, wow, no one has ever been there. No one. It feels like a privilege just to see those places and be able to breathe the air that hasn't been polluted and so on and so on.
2: Amazing. I feel like... a. Uh- I want to ask you just the same question, but about the businesses that you've run. And know it's maybe like asking you your favorite child, but out of the businesses that you've run and started and sold, which one was your favorite or which was the best highlights from doing that?
1: Well, I think there's highlights for different reasons. Some of my first companies, we were focused on making money they were all in technology space or the mobile telecom space. So we were selling games and ringtones and songs and stuff. And afterwards, I felt a little bit empty because I felt like we created value for the investors, which was the goal, but we didn't really do anything positive to change the world. Then I, for example, did another company where we brought mobile broadband into Africa. And then you could say, okay, we're creating value, but we're doing something good at the same time. And then I had a company, one company that was struggling and we ended up refocusing. When I got involved, we refocused the company and ended up selling it to Facebook, which was amazing because we had a bunch of people that were ready to give up almost on the company and said, okay, last roll of the dice. And we said, okay, well, hold on. Maybe there's a different way of thinking about the problem. And all of those put together, I think, remind me of the fact that there is hundreds of thousands of things in the world that we do every day that are not optimal. And it's for people to challenge the way to think about them and think about it in a different way and create companies and opportunities out of those. And that's the thing that keeps me going still.
0: Well, what a way to wrap up. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We have loved talking to you and we're excited to see what you do next.
1: Likewise, I'll be looking out for misbehaving. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Ate. Ate. Thank you very much.
0: Let's wrap up with some takeaways and top tips from Ate's episode. The first one has to be this concept of scenario planning if you're more reflective. One of the things that we hear so much in the work that we do is reflective people or leaders of reflective people wanting to speed up that reflection process. And Ate described his scenario planning process as mapping out what that scenario could look like and then what action you would take off the back of those scenarios so that you can react quicker and make quicker decisions in the moment. He also talked about the fact that in what he does, whether it's in business or in mountaineering, he is pretty much in a state of constant ambiguity and how that actually helped him process when the pandemic hit And as a leader, the lesson from that really is if you can get into this state of being comfortable with not always knowing things and practice being okay with uncertainty and just focusing in those moments on what you can control, it's likely that you will become more flexible in that process. So the last one and really the theme for the episode with Ate was around that preparation of your psychological state and that if you as a business owner or a leader can work on your mental state and prepare for different situations, work on your subconscious mind, look at how you react to certain things, prepare some of those scenarios that he talked about, but really working on that mental fortitude so to speak, that's really what's going to help you progress.
2: Thank you for listening to Misbehave. Follow us so you don't miss out on other episodes.